Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 249. We'll begin with announcing that this year has surpassed all other years in the essay submissions that have come in from all places in the world, including Russian essays this year, Hebrew essays, English essays, and the judging evaluation of these submissions has begun. So congratulate, I congratulate all of you and each one of you who submitted. I've already heard great, great feedback from people who've written essays, from the schools especially, students, and it's just extremely gratifying to see so much investment and so much energy in fulfilling the prime mission, the prime objective of our times, which is spreading the wellsprings outward, applying chesidus, taking chesidus, and turning it into an applicable blueprint for life, dealing with every possible issue and challenge. So I look forward to seeing these essays when the time comes for me to see them. Now the judges are beginning to go through them all. They're blindly judging them, which means they don't know who they're reading, and um, it's very exciting. I'll keep you posted as things get updated. We continue now our journey in this 249th episode of uh, My Life City Supplied. And as always, begin with something timely. This is the week, and this week we have Purim Cotton. It's something that doesn't happen every year. It's only when it's in a year, in a leap year, when you have an additional other. So it's instituted that it be a Purim Cotton. Purim Godel as it's sometimes called, or sometimes Purim Shani and Purim Rishon, is the second other. As the Gemara says, we derive that from the fact, to make sure that one, one redemption, which is the redemption that happened in the time of Purim, should come to the Gula of Mitzrayim in Nisan. So they should be consecutive, they should be close to each other. But we don't ignore the fact that the 15th of other in the month of Adarishan, is also marked, as it says in Shulchan Aruch, that you should add some simcha. At the end of Shulchan Aruch, it concludes with the laws of Purim Cotton. And actually concludes with the words, Tev Lev Mishta Tamit Am Purim Cotton. You think Purim Cotton. By the name itself, it means a small Purim. But yet, one of the tremendous lessons in this, and no pun intended, tremendous, is there's no such thing as small in spirituality, in Judaism, in Torah, in God's perspective. It's small compared to the Purim where we celebrate the full festive mitzvahs, Hayyim of Purim, the reading of Megillah and the Suddhas and the Mishlaich Monas, Ishlare Eyu and Matanas Lavyanim and everything else that we do on Purim. But there's no such thing as cotton in the context of small. As a matter of fact, as we discussed a few weeks ago in the context of the leap year, the small luminary refers to the moon. And the Gemara and Chulun speaks about and associates that with Yaakov who are cotton. Yaakov is called the small one. David who are cotton. David is called the small one. And the Jewish people are called Atama Atma Kolami. Atama Atma Kolami. You're the fewest of all nations in quantity, but in quality in that cotton, in that katnus lies an enormous amount of power. Because, as Chassidus explains, the idea of bittel. The sun is a moira godl, pure 
firepower, pure light, energy, heat, the sun is incomparable to the moon. But when you talk about the power of bitl, the power of divesting yourself, of, of, of uh, stripping yourself of ego and of personality and identity, of suspending yourself in order to receive something greater, there's a power in that that the greatest mashpia, the giver, can never have. And that's the power of akotan, the power of bitl. So though it's true the moon was diminished for its complaint, but everything you did to say to Khalia, every descent is in order to bring a greater elevation, and especially knowing God knew what he was doing. And though God says, yes, bring a kapoda, a VLA kapoda, an atonement for me, for causing because I've diminished the moon. So here's not the place to go into what exactly God meant by that. If you're an atonement, why didn't he do, why did he do it in the first place? But the end result is, what we derive from this, the power of the tiny, of the small. Because it's not as powerful in its personality and identity, it becomes a channel to channel everything that's great. As great as a person can be, as great as an entity can be, it's only as great as it is. When you have bitl, when you can suspend yourself and receive something greater than yourself, then you can become greater than yourself. So if it's your own identity, you're only as great as your identity. But when you suspend yourself and you become a channel for something greater than you, you become an extension of that greatness. If it's eternity, you become an extension of eternity. The greatness of the sun can never have that. And that is also the Jewish people who are compared to the moon and count to the moon. And that is David Yaakov who are cotton, David who are cotton, and Purim cotton. So though on one hand, obviously Purim cotton is not the celebration of the Yontav of Purim, but it has its own particular message. That even when it's so-called overshadowed by the second month of other, when the real Purim, or the full Purim, I should say, not the real Purim, the full Purim will be celebrated, but in its katnus, in a sense, in its humility, that's where we learn tev lev mishta tamid. A good heart is always celebrating. Or when you always celebrate, you have a good heart, however you interpret it. And as commentaries explain, that the beginning of Shulchan Aruch, of Erechayim, begins with tamid. Shavisi l'Hashem l'Negdi Samid. I stand nullified before you or equalized before you, God. Tamid always. And the end of the Chelek Erechayim concludes with Shavisi, with Tevlev Mishta Tamid, the two Tamidin. Like in the temple, there was a Tamid. Tamid was the permanent and constant daily offering. It was brought in the morning and in the evening or before the evening. That's the Mincha, Shachris and Mincha. So, so here too, it hints to the Tamid, the Tamid of standing nullified before God, nullified Bittal, which in turn brings to Tevlev Mishta Tamid, the second Tamid, which is expansion of joy because the greatest joy is when you, there's humility humility is not a selfish joy it's not a self-indulgent joy it's a true joy that you can really reach places that are beyond you and that's how it explains in Chassidus the idea the idea that Dafka people, specifically those that are humble because humility allows you to get beyond your immediate discomfort or you may say why should I be happy, it's not so good Humility allows you to transcend that and experience true joy. In a way, what we say every day in Shemineser, we say, Nafshi <clears throat> ka'afu psachli bi 
may my spirit, or my spirit stands before you, is offered, is like dust, Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, a bitl. And that in turn opens Psach like I said, because when you're an empty container and you're open to receive, then open my heart in Teira. The second Tamid, which is Tevlev Mishnah Tamid. The lesson, of course, to each of us is that no matter where you stand, and even if you feel sometimes you're inadequate, or you don't have the kaiches, the faculties or resources to achieve something, in that katnus, in that sense of lack, you can actually draw forth greatest power, because that's what humility does. That's what cotton does. And that's what Purim cotton teaches us, among other lessons. It's also Pasha Kisisa. So what's the beginning of Pasha Kisisa? Kisisa? Machzisa Shekel. What's Machzisa Shekel? There were donations offered, donations brought in the temple, and people gave, the wealthy gave more, the ones that had less wealth gave less. But when it came to Machzisa Shekel, the half coin that was used at the time for building the Adnei HaMishkin, for the building the, the, the supports for the pillars, and later would be used for the Karbonus Sibur, the Beis Amigdash, to buy the collective offerings. Here it says, Machzisa Shekel. A wealthy person shouldn't give more, and a poor person shouldn't give less. But what's the significance of a half a shekel? So this explains. Half is the sign of bittel, and God fills the other half. Chatzetzis are the trumpets that we read about in Parsha Baalescha, and the Magid explains Chatzetzis is the word Chetzitsura, that we provide one half of the image, and God fills the other half. So it's a total partnership. As we empty ourselves and we feel half, that's when you get the completion. And you get completed by the other partner, which is the highest partner of all, God himself. And that's the same lesson, the idea of bitl leads to greatness. There's nothing as powerful as bitl. It's the only thing that cannot be eliminated. As the Rebbe once said, bitl kenish botlevan. You cannot diminish bitl because... Diminishment is its personality. The more you diminish it, the more it becomes it. An interesting paradox. There's more on the lesson of Pasha Kisisa, but I'll leave that for the Chassidus question at the end of this program. just want to refer you to um, episode 104, where I discussed as well Purim Kotn and Kisisa. All episodes are archived. So we have already 248 episodes archived. You can access them at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. They can be downloaded, MP3s, podcasts, and um, it also includes other resources there, including essays of the past four years of submissions, as well as a forum where you can submit any question, any comment, completely anonymously, and we will address it, as is our um, tradition here not to in any way censor anything that's asked, and every question is valuable. So please use the opportunity. I'll do my best to gather the sources and comment and and address that particular issue. So with that, let us go into some topics of this week and a lot of follow-up as well. So I hope I left enough time so I shouldn't have to keep pushing over the follow-ups. The next question is, is obesity overblown? Uh, the truth is, this is really a follow-up. But 
since it's a topic that I see comes up from time to time, so I might as well address it straight head on. It's a topic I began discussing early back in episode 43, and then more in, in, in a different angle in 205 and 206, episodes 205, 206. And there I cited a letter, an answer from the Rebbe, basically saying that he feels it's exaggerated what some so-called experts are saying about the effects of obesity. So the, here's a letter that we received, an email that we received, or I would say a submission we received. Rabbi Jacobson, I don't recall whether I was listening to a current podcast of yours or an old one, but on the topic of weight, you cited correspondence that the Rebbe had with a woman where he writes that the correlation of weight and poor health is overblown. I thought it was quite the statement and couldn't allow myself to see the truth of that. As of the Rebbe needed my haskama. How can one not appreciate obesity's correlation with high blood pressure, with how blood pressure is elevated, with more frequent respiratory problems, gastro problems, etc., etc., as medical doctors continuously emphasize? However, I recently came upon a book, and I'm currently reading this book, The Body Keeps the Score by famed psychiatrist. Dr. Van der Kolk, where he hypothesizes that at times obesity can be a positive and weight loss a negative. And here are attachments. So I felt it appropriate, not again that the Rebbe needs Askama, but when you see how something from Teda, and the Rebbe coming from a Teda perspective, is corroborated by Chochmah Bagoim Taimen, a secular scholar, a secular scientist, a psychiatrist, it's um, definitely gratifying. And it shows also how certain truths begin to permeate a world that sometimes is not always open to the eternal truths of the Taylor's approach. Now, the Rebbe did not say in that settle that obesity is chadchila mitzvah, and that's what everyone should be doing. He's talking about once a person is that condition, how to address it. I just heard as well today, someone told me there was a person who lost a lot of weight very quickly, and the Rebbe said it may not be so healthy to lose it so quickly, it should be done much more slowly. So here is from the book, but let me finish the person's letter to us. To see what may have been the Rebbe's point in secular scientific writings is interesting. P.S. I'm halfway through the book, and it's a great read on the subject of trauma. P.P.S. Love your program. So I'm going to just read an excerpt from the book that, uh, that this fellow sent me. Uh, when problems are really solutions... This Dr. Kolk writes, or Vander Kolk, we should say. Twelve years after he originally treated her, Felidi again saw the woman whose dramatic weight loss and gain had started him on his quest. She told him that she'd sub- subsequently had bariatric surgery, but after that she'd lost after that she'd lost 96 pounds, she'd become suicidal. It had taken five psychiatric hospitalizations and three courses of electroshock to control her suicidality. Felidi points out that obesity, which is considered a major public health problem, may in fact be a personal solution for many. Consider the implications. If you mistake someone's solution for a problem to be eliminated, not only are they likely to fail treatment, as often happens in addiction programs, but other problems may emerge. One female victim told Felidi, overweight, a victim of a violation. 
Hopefully, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. Weight can protect men as well. Felili recalls two guards at a state prison in his obesity program. They promptly regained the weight they had lost because they felt a lot safer being the biggest guy on the cell block. Another male patient became obese after his parents divorced, and he moved in with his violent alcoholic grandfather. He explained, It wasn't that I ate because I was hungry and all of that. It was just a place for me to feel safe. All the way from kindergarten, I used to get beat up all the time. When I got the weight on it, on, it didn't happen anymore. The ACE study group concluded, although widely understood to be harmful to health, each adaptation, such as smoking, drinking, drugs, obesity, is notably difficult to give up. Little consideration is given to the possibility that many long-term health risks might also be personally beneficial in the short term. We repeatedly hear from patients of the benefits of those health risks, quote-unquote. The idea of the problem being a solution, while understandably disturbing to many, is certainly in keeping with the fact that opposing forces routinely coexist in biological systems. What one sees, the presenting problem, is often only the marker for the real problem, which lies buried in time, concealed by patient shame, secrecy, and sometimes amnesia, and frequently clinician discomfort. So I thought it was appropriate to read. There's a lot of details here that actually very much parallel and reflect ideas from Chassidus, from Tata in general. So obviously I invite other comments and feedback, but I thought it was a very worthwhile reading this and another important addition and contribution to the discussion on this topic, which, as I said, I discussed in earlier episodes. Completely on a different topic altogether, Mishachism. You know, from time to time, we get the questions. Some of them are very appropriate. Some of them are a little weird. I think this one is on the weird end of the spectrum. But I don't want to silence any questioner, and I will comment on it. And I wanted you to also know, some people often ask me, why did you even read that question? Listen to the question and listen to my response. Just the question itself. A person has a question. We don't have to silence people. Even if we think it's a foolish question, even if we think it's a, a childish question, even if it's a weird question. So answer with respect and put, make your point because he may, that person, he or she, may not be the only one with that question. And that's what I try to do. Obviously, there are questions that are completely off the wall, which I don't think are fitting even to talk about. But if it's not in that category, it's worthwhile asking. So this person asked the following. Is it inappropriate, in is in parentheses, so is it appropriate or inappropriate to refer to a Mishachist rabbinic figure by a rabbinic title such as a rabbi, rav, or the like? Okay, so clearly this is coming from a very biased position where um, uh, he's referring to, I guess, a certain segment of a group that's dismissed by others. So I, I talked about the topic of what they call Mishachistin, even though I cannot stand the title, I cannot stand the name. It doesn't come from the Rebbe, it doesn't come from Teda, from Chassidus. So it's, but since it is a, a language, a slang that's been used in the street, I'm referring it to it only for that reason. So I discussed this topic of 46, in episodes 46, 183, 185, and 186. So there's a lot more there. I'm not going to go through everything I spoke about there. But first of all, one of the Yud Gimel Ikrim is to believe in Mashiach, and not just believe, but imminent arrival. And we know what the Rebbe kind of fuss and the way the Rebbe accelerated that type of effort and that type of anticipation. From the first Maimar Bosla Gani Tov and throughout the Nesiyas, in the Mems, 
not just to wait, but actively wait, and do whatever we can to bring the Gula. And I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to repeat now all the Rebbe's language. So if somebody embraces the Rebbe's approach, is that called a Mishachist? Why not? That's called a person who believes in Mashiach, believes in the way the Rebbe's directions to us in that regard, and that's that. However, I'm not naive, I understand that when Mishachist and people mean either people who yell Yechi, or do other things that they see as radical or out of the mainstream and maybe even distance others because of its, um, its uh, so-called uh, extreme nature. And as I discussed then, we have a Rebbe. What the Rebbe said we have to do, not more, not less. And that's how I look at it. There are things that we must do. There are things we're not allowed to do by clear directions of the Rebbe. There are things called Rishus. We're allowed to do case by case. Every location, every person, every situation, every person has to be looked at and seen what's the best way to encourage, to inspire, to get people motivated to do whatever they can to bring the goal. So that's the balanced approach, which is based on completely on the Rebbe. As I said, it's a, a way that you don't have to fall into any type of extremes. Your extreme should be your passion and your commitment and ask only one question. What are you doing today to bring the goal? With the methods that we know from the time-tested methods of Teirah, Mitzvah, Derech, Yishoda, the direct path, through learning Chassidus, through spreading Chassidus, through learning about Gula Mashiach, through living a life that is as close as possible to what the world will look like and what life will look like when Mashiach comes. So this type of question in that context, what are you referring to? Who's deciding whether this is, uh, whether this is uh, appropriate or not appropriate? If it's appropriate... So then if the person's a rov, he's a rov. And that's that. If it's inappropriate, so then I would phrase the question, are we in the position to go determine who can be called a rabbinic figure? What happens if a person is not a mishachist? I'm asking the questioner. But he does other things that are not so appropriate. Can you call him a, can you call him a rabbinic title such as rabbi, rav, or the like? So that's a question, halacha. There's no question that a rov can cross a line and behave in a way that's completely not fitting, and then maybe he, he should not be called by that name because of the Chil Hashem and so on. But there are laws governing that. It's not up to us to determine who we decide we're going to title or not title. And what are the conditions necessary? Someone believes that the Rebbe is Mashiach. Someone believes that Mashiach is about to come. Firstly, who says there's any problem with that in the first place? Halachically. So the question I read the question, but my response is equally as adamant and saying, who, number one is, what, the, what means Meshachism? Number two, who are we to determine what is appropriate, what is not appropriate? And number three, there's halachas that govern the issues of who you call it of and who you don't call it of and who can be stripped of that title and by whom. So that's my brief answer, and we move on. Next question, which is a question that has come in. And here I'm just going to refer you to previous episode. Law of attraction. Is there, what is the difference between the Jewish concept of betachen, which is trust in God, and the law of attraction, which has become recently popular in a number of years, the last decade or two. Law of attraction means that when you set your mind to something, the law of attraction, you will, be, you will attract it to you. And there were books written about it, The Secret and others. It's, it's a movement and it pops up everywhere. And of course, immediately when you hear that, it sounds very familiar, similar to the idea of when you trust in God, God will respond. Think positively, 
and that will attract positive results. So the question is, is there a difference between the Jewish concept of betachon and the law of attraction? This is a question that, that's been in my head for a while. Is betachon or tragut the Jewish expression of a law of attraction? Seems to me law of attraction is manipulative. Could you address this topic? Could be that you address this topic and I didn't listen every week. If yes, I apologize. No need to apologize. There's many, many topics that have been addressed. You could search for it by words in search engine on our site or through Google. And yes, I did discuss it very directly, almost word for word, your question. In episode 39, and especially in episode 231. I'm not going to go over again because it's very easy to go find it and there's no point to use the time. Let's use it for new topics. Um, and what you said is correct. I, I was just correct. You don't say, betochen and tragut precedes law of attraction. So if anything, law of attraction may have derived some ideas from there, albeit in a distorted way, but not the other way around. I just wanted to comment as I read that. I, this is my feeling on the matter. So I refer you again, 39 and episodes 39, 231. You have a complete answer there, and there's nothing I'm going to add to that now. Okay, next question. And... Again, I want to repeat that these questions have come in the last months. But as I said, we backed up. So, but I assure you that I will get to every question. So the questions sometimes are random. Sometimes we bunch them together. There's no real rule. It all depends on what type of question it is. This is a question I believe was not asked. So I'm going to address it. Walk, walking past a church. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Is there any source in halacha, in Jewish law, meaning Yisrael, Jewish custom, the tailor in general of our Rabbeim, or Hanhaga, behavior of our Rebbes, about not walking past the church. Okay, so let's start what we know. We know that the Rebbe, when he would walk from his home in President Street between Brooklyn and New York, and would walk down President Street towards 770 and Brooklyn, he often walked past the church between Union and Eastern Parkway and Brooklyn Avenue. Same thing when he walked from 770 to his home and did not necessarily cross the street. There have been different arguments. Sometimes he may have crossed, but I personally saw in so many, usually not. And the Rebbe is enough source of Teda that if there's any issue, obviously the Rebbe would follow Halacha or Minig. There is a Din of Shulchan Aruch in Yeridea, Simen Kuf. Nun, Kuf Nun, yes, 150, Sif that you should not walk in the Dal Amis of a church. But firstly, the street is more than Dal Amis, more than four cubits. Secondly, the street is a public street. It's not part of the property. Because that would be a question if you had to walk somewhere, and the only way to walk is through the garden or through the property, the, person, the, the private property of this space. That may be a question. But it is a question. There's also laws about not having anah, enjoying anything that comes from that. And the reason, of course, is because for a Jew, the trinity and the beliefs of the church are considered to be idol- idolatrous. There's a question whether it is so for Christians. But today as well, that I'm already paskened that meaning of a same be a day, which is another discussion. And even for them, it's more of a, more of a ritual and tradition rather than necessarily a belief. But regardless, the issue is Based on, based on what we witnessed, um, it doesn't seem like there's an issue, and there's no one that actually states anywhere there is an issue in this type of circumstance, especially in our world where, as I said, the street is off. It's a public street. 
And that's the answer to that question. Okay. If anybody has more information on this, either answers, letters, notes, observations, please, this is the point of this whole program, to get as much as possible information from anyone that may have it. So I would, uh, I would welcome any comment, and I'd share it next week or whenever I receive those comments. Another question, unrelated as well, separation of families. Okay. And here too, I may not agree with the question, but I will read it and then respond. How should a Jew react? <clears throat> How should a Jew react to the separation of families? Let's be more specific. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, you mentioned that the challenge of the Jewish people in this age is prosperity. Please think about that in regards to the issue of families being torn apart by the immigration authorities. It was not that long ago that Jews were desperately trying to get out of Europe and make it to the United States where they could live in peace. Many were turned away because of immigration quotas. Many voices in the U.S. at that time argued that these, immigration, that these immigrants could be a threat to national security and might bring in, and might bring in diseases, would be a burden on our system, etc. Thank goodness the United States opened its ports to a great many of them, including many of our grandparents and great-grandparents. Now that Jews are comfortable and well-established in the United States, it is a great temptation to close our hearts to immigrants and assume that they have bad intentions. We should know better. If our prosperity eclipses our humanity, we will eventually have to stand before Hashem and account for our hard-heartedness. Okay. Whenever I get a question like this, I have a serious dilemma, to be very honest, and I'll just be very open and candid about it. Politically charged questions always cloud the issues. Because there's a question, you ask a question from a point of view that's no bias, no prejudice, not based on any propaganda or any agenda, great. But as soon as it gets into a certain type of party line, then you start wondering, is the question coming from a, an honest, objective place, or is it coming from that party line? And not in any way suggesting the writer of this question has any party line. But the fact of the matter is the media feeds us all kinds of stuff. It's perfectly blunt. This is the attack on Donald Trump. Now, why he's under attack for this matter? And yes, FDR was not under attack. You mentioned that Jews were allowed in. But you know how many Jews were not allowed in? And how many immigrants throughout different, different administrations, quotas? Read a little American history. So why suddenly is there almost hysteria when it comes to to our situation now. So the only answer I have is because it is an agenda. And if it's not immigration, it'll be something else. And there is a definitely a very deliberate effort to criticize and undermine anything Mr. Trump tries to do. I am not a Mr. Trump lackey. I'm not saying everything he says is right. But you have to also be objective to know if someone says everything he does is wrong. He's bringing up an issue which is not the first president to address it. He may be the first one that's doing it more aggressively. He does it perhaps unorthodoxly. But if you're going to be fair, then go through all the administrations and see which presidents had very, very strict immigration policies that were criticized at the time for exactly this reason. This country, not just Jews, this country is a land of immigrants. Frankly, the immigrants came and killed the natives. We're not even going to go to that. So it's a land of immigrants. 
whether it's Irish or German or British or others from other third world countries and so on. So you have this issue is an existing issue, immigration issue. When I look at it, it's despicable to me because instead of all putting our heads together to try to figure out what to do about the issue, because everyone understands immigration is a healthy thing. That, no, suddenly they don't quote Mr. Trump when he says that. Only quote the second half. There's another half. That yes, immigration is important for a country like this. It adds to the work effort. It adds to people who really want and want to, commu- want to contribute to the welfare of this country. However, like any country knows, you need to have boundaries. That's why you have passports. And you need to have rules and regulations. What they are, if we put our heads together instead of having a political agenda to just either criticize or support someone, we'd be a lot better shape. That's my overall comment on the thing itself, on the climate that this question is being asked. This still does not address the actual question, which I know immediately will be brought up. So I'll address the actual question. But I don't like to be set up that this is Jews should be the first to know that we have to welcome. Of course, it says in the Torah, you should welcome the ger, the convert, the immigrant. Why? Because you were once a stranger. So obviously this is built into Torah. But to use it in a political way, I find that to be disingenuous, if not worse. Again, I don't think it's the writer. I think it's the climate. There's the media. There's the political parties. Without mentioning names, it's quite obvious what is going on. Now, regarding separation of families, I looked at it a bit. Obviously, when we see images of someone being ripped away from a mother or father, it's horrible. It reminds us, of course, of the Holocaust itself, and many people compare it in, many, in a very obscene way. It should never be compared. Now, there are rules. What do you do? What do you do with immigrants that are being processed? And they have children. And some of them are bringing children that are not even their own children. It's complicated. You can't just ask a question and just say separation and just paint pictures and images of showing that separation and children crying. Because firstly, as I said, there are many nuanced situations and not also black and white. Secondly, even if there is that, so fine, yes, we have to find benevolent ways and that is what we have to put pressure on. And indeed, if any president or any administration is doing something like that, and again, Trump is not the first, that has to be addressed because we are a compassionate country. But all in context, the lack of context to just choose something is called a loaded question. And I wanted to address both ends of it because many people ask me, how do you answer a question? I said, you have to separate between the question and the intention of the questioner, which often is not always uh, going to to serve well because whatever you answer, they'll come back with something else because there's an agenda. Again, I'm not suggesting this questioner, but I wanted to state here both things answer the question as well as answer the mode of the question and the climate in which it's being asked. So the answer is, of course, we're against separation of families, especially real families that are coming together. But you have to know what are the circumstances and so on. Now, look, families coming from other countries, the responsible adults need to know when they're coming to a country and there's a process of how you, get, how you, get, how you immigrate and you're, and you're absorbed into the country and bringing children, there's risks involved. Not that, God forbid, that the children deserve to be ripped away, but they're uprooting their families. Why are they coming here? And again, if there's a good reason, great. But, but we have to also look at the parents. Are they responsible? Are they just victims here? They're also responsible for bringing their children into these circumstances and all the challenges involved in immigration. And there is a process how to become an immigrant. I'm, I know the process is broken, and they're trying to work on it. And again, 
I don't think that most people are interested in fixing it. They're interested in using it as a weapon and a tool. Who will win the next election? Who will look best, etc., etc.? So that's where things get really complicated, and that's why you can't even trust what are their real intentions. You really want to bring families together, and then you find out that some people who are now criticizing, they themselves were part of uh, writing laws that did certain things that were not appropriate in previous administrations. So everything needs context and research, and I think I've said enough on the topic. See also episode episode 218, where I discussed a similar issue regarding boundaries and borders, and again around Trump and the arguments around that. So just to complement this topic. Okay, we're going to do now a bunch of follow-ups, important follow-ups that are addressing topics we addressed last week and two weeks ago and a few weeks ago and even a few months ago. I'll try to do as many as I can. Hopefully I can cover them all. And that way I know that if these tied up these strings, I'll hope. We'll begin with last week's episode. We talked about something which I believe was probably got one of the most responses from all the years of my life. I'm going to say the most. There have been other topics that are similar, but this one was a very, very serious response from all circles, from all backgrounds, <clears throat> both in writing. or I've gotten calls verbally, and people met me, and so on. Boundaries for males who are teaching young women, girls in school. This was last week's episode, so if you haven't heard what was said then, I would advise listening to that before you listen to the follow-up. So, I want to begin with something, that's always good to begin with something from the Rebbe. <clears throat> I saw a video of a fellow, a looks like a son or a grandson of a Rebbe, a good Tarid, and says to the Rebbe that uh, based on the Rebbe's edict, of Yafutsa Mainasekha Khutsa to spread the wellsprings outward and be Makar of Eden of all backgrounds. What do you do about speaking to women and the issues around women? The Nisyanus and so on. He doesn't say that, he says women. What about speaking to women? And the Rebbe responds very interestingly. The Rebbe says, Das is Tali and Aich, Das is Tali depending on you. Women. The women the Gemara says and the Rizal says that Biskus Nashim said Konyus of this generation, just as it was in the time of Mitzrayim, and their merit, the Eden will be let out of Gula. That's how the Rebbe looks at women. It's dependent on you to look at them in the right way. He repeats again the question, and the Rebbe keeps saying, you have to look at yourself. And then the final thing the Rebbe says, you should be matzlich in your futzah and more emphasis on ma'inasecha than on chutzah. I just thought it was a very powerful way the Rebbe is looking at this issue. Because there are answers from the Rebbe. Someone wrote to me, you come out so strongly criticizing males teaching women. Um, first of all, I did not say that. There are many male teachers in schools. I said the level of the boundaries necessary and how deep to engage. So he wrote, the Rebbe has setlach where he says, encouraging men, mashpim and so on, to also speak to women about chassidus, about chassidus and so on, that they too need it. Especially in our time. But the Rebbe, obviously, it goes without saying that in the form of tzniyas, respecting the laws of Yichud, definitely not going to any area where there could be any type of risk. The Rebbe did not negate that. On the contrary, you see that from other places. So I want to make the emphasis, but we're not talking about the idea of teaching. Yes, overall, better that women should teach women 
And nails, fine. You have to give a class, you give a series of classes. But it ends there. When it comes to more engagement, more involvement, as we discussed last week, it's very clear that there have to be very serious boundaries. Following halacha. Following halacha. So with that, let me go and read a few responses. In connection to, ma- to male mashpia for girls, the Gemara in Megillah on page 14a, Yudal Aleph, tells the story of why Dveira, the Nevia, the prophetess, only answered questions under a palm tree, because that way, a palm tree, others can see her t- talking to them, and it was never kashash of Yichud, as the Gemara says there. No concern of Yichud, because the palm branches are very tall, and it's an open area, and that's where she did her advising. Now this is a prophetess, the great care that she took. So it's a very good comment. It seconds what I believe I mentioned when the Rebbe had Yechidus. We saw it clearly. Because women went in, the Rebbe's window was always open and the curtain and the shade was up. And that's why it was, by every Yechidus. Now we're talking about tzaddik beyond any question. But there's laws of Teda and the Teda has laws that apply to everybody. It's a lesson for all of us. Time for men to get out of girls' school, another person writes. The time is ripe for men to get jobs elsewhere. There's no need to have men teaching, reaching for bringing with girls, even more so in high school and seminary. This is not okay, it was never okay, and it should not be tolerated at all. Signed, Shliach. Another person writes, very good topic. This includes people that call themselves rabbis and anoint themselves as therapists. Number four, I agree 100% were the one that says time for men to get out of schools. I never understood this practice and I've always felt that this represents a true hypocrisy in our community. And I'm considered, and I'm considered a modern quote-unquote guy. This only reinforces the idea that rabbis make the rules only to exclude themselves from it. There are Baruch Hashem enough capable women to teach and run the sems, seminaries, high schools, etc. Just try imagining a woman giving a lesson in a yeshiva, meaning in a men's yeshiva. Another person writes, yes, this. Rabbis shouldn't be for bringing late into the night with women, especially single women. I worked in a seminary as a dorm counselor and had many situations where I was extremely uncomfortable. One rabbi, after some l'chaims late at night with 30, 40 girls surrounding him, doesn't sit right. And sometimes if the rabbi got too comfy, semi-inappropriate things happened. Unless you're at Tzadik V'tevle, a rabbi should not put himself in a situation like this. I just want to interject. Even if you're a tzaddik v'tevle, there's dinim, as I mentioned before. A lecture for a designated amount of time, a class, that's okay. That cozy fabrengen style, late hours, young women, not okay, not okay. Another person writes, rabbis have no business teaching girls. I went to a ut day school, I'm not sure what that is, and looking back at my teen years, there were two rabbis in particular who crossed many boundaries. Thankfully, not t- talking physical boundaries, but emotional relationships were made. As a teen, this never, seemed inap- this never seemed inappropriate, quite the opposite. I felt special to have this extra attention, getting extra talks after classes, gifts, phone calls, etc. None of this ever seemed strange to me. As a married woman with kids now, I am mortified. Being married, I now realize how inappropriate these friendships I formed with married men were. There are plenty of knowledgeable women who can hold their own in a classroom, no need for men in this day and age. My male secular teachers had more boundaries and decorum than the rabbis in school. One example, it took a secular teacher in my school to stop what he felt was inappropriate behavior coming from a rabbi. 
Again, as kids, we are taught sneers, modesty for ourselves, but don't know what is expected of men, which creates harmful situations. And a few more comments. As you could see, the, the gist of it, you could see the consensus is quite clear. It's very simple, very simple. There's no woman that could teach as well as a man. Therefore, you need rabbis teaching. Well, again, even if that's true, that does, it does not take away the boundaries. The next person, agree, 100%, totally inappropriate. However, an older man, 50 plus, teaching a class, not for brain, etc., is certainly fine. And then finally, I'll read one more. There's a lot more, but I'll just read one more. You're 100% right, and so is everyone else commenting about the negatives of a male figure for bringing with girls women. Even as teachers, males should be relegated to teach males, and women can very well teach women. We have some outstanding lamdonias today. These are women scholars. This, of course, doesn't apply to a one-time talk lecture. I'm referring to teaching subject matter on a regular basis, day-to-day or week-to-week. If and where possible, best to keep the genders separate. Okay, so this helps fill in some of the comments, some other details on this topic. And again, if you have any further comments, anyone wants to weigh in, I mean, you could repeat what's been said or maybe another angle, another aspect, please feel free to go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife and you have the forum where you can anonymously submit any question or comment. We also spoke about hypnosis in last episode 248. So here's a follow-up to that. There I read one letter from Tav Shalamit Ches from the Rebbe. I have yet to find more on the topic from the Rebbe. If anybody has anything, please submit it and uh, for the benefit of the benefit of the public. Hi, my father is a master hypnotherapist. He does hypnoanalysis and removes root causes of the issues under hypnosis. Is the most powerful and most effective form of helping people. My father helped many Chabad people and couples. I'm very, I'm very interested in your follow-up on the Rebbe's Sikha about hypnosis. Well, I, I mentioned there's a Sikha, but I have not yet found it. Please note, hypnoanalysis for helping patients is different than stage hypnosis. That is for show and fun, taking away control from people. Hypnoanalysis actually does not remove any control, and instead you need the patient to guide you to their root cause of their issue. So a small example, a bachar who stutters when talking. He has a hard time finding a shidduch. Under hypnosis, you can relive and see your past as if it's happening now, he saw at young age his father caught him doing something he thought was wrong. And when he tried to tell his father, but I meant dot, 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 his father shut him up. So it started, but I meant dot, 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 meaning, but I meant, but I, but, but I start, started stuttering out of that fear. So in hypnosis, now that you know the cause, you have them tell their father under hypnosis what he wanted to say. That full sentence the full sentence, and with an understanding why he no longer needs to stutter and case closed. So what did the Rebbe say about such hypnosis? Okay, well, it's an interesting case, study, and I definitely accept what you're saying. I know that it doesn't always work for everybody, but if it worked, it worked. I don't have a direct answer what the Rebbe said about that particular type of hypnosis, which is more guided coaching, that is not taking away control, because the Rebbe's big issue was taking away control from somebody, except in a life-threatening circumstance. So I would need to look further, but I'm glad that you brought this up. And we continue the discussion. And again, I welcome anyone that wants to weigh in. It can really be useful because people do need help. And sometimes hypnosis is an option, or as you put it, um, you called it was hypno, hypno-analysis. And it would be good to hear 
things that we may have that the Rebbe may have said. And I will continue to do my research, and please weigh in anything that you may want to add to it. Another follow-up in 247, episode 247, was about abortion. So there's one question that I did not yet address, or, or one comment I should say. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I heard your very logical and cogent response about abortion. And one thing struck me. When it hurts, we cry out. We cry whether our response will be effective or not. We cry simply because it hurts. We have sitting elected officials that have taken disgraceful positions regarding infanticide, including the position that babies that are already born can be aborted, God forbid. This is applauded as a woman's choice, quote-unquote. Future generations will look back at ours and recognize this barbarism. It's shocking to me that every religious Jew and every religious person and organization of every religious persuasion and denomination does not rise up and fight this. We believe in right versus wrong, in the sanctity of every human life. The silence from the Jewish community is deafening. Should Jews have remained silent about the Holocaust, the way the New York Times was, just because others wouldn't have listened, and we may have turned some Jews off from Kite? Chaz v'shal. As an additional point, the left is fighting the narrative war, and in many ways winning. Our silence condones their position. We have to stand up for what's right and change that war, regardless of whether it will earn us brownie points from others or not, just because it's right. Thank you. So I appreciate your comment, and I understand, because I made the point we have to know and choose our battles, so to speak, what to speak, where not to speak. I understand when the person is in pain and you're coming from that place, but it's always important to try to do something that's going to be constructive. And that's the bottom line. I don't know if I would compare it to the Holocaust quite, not because abortion is uh, less of a crime, but the Holocaust is its own league and its own scale. And uh, I mean, with abortion, it's a lot more of a private issue and it would be most important is to influence the women who are going through it. It's may, and maybe that's exactly the point, that it should not be legislated. It should be more of an educational campaign and people can be taught and so on. So it's more complicated than that. But still, I appreciate your comment and I'm not going to add any more to that. In episode 247, we addressed another thing, the Bible Unauthorized. This was a book published in the Times of the Friedrich Rebbe, and I quoted different letters. So somebody writes, as a follow-up to a recent broadcast that talked about the Bible, to a re- Bible Unauthorized, yes, episode 247, here is a letter from the Rebbe from 1947, printed in Igor's Cages, volume 2, page 203. I frankly think I read that letter or I made reference to it, but either I might as well read what this fellow quotes. In part, the Rebbe says, my translation, the book is a mix of good and mistakes. It has many explanations and ideas that are astonishing in their novelty, but also includes concepts that are not true, which the author did not agree to change. Since the majority is good, the Rebbe recommended that it be used. So yes, I may not have read exactly that language, but I did refer that the Rebbe did say that there were things in the book that were not, um, according to Taylor approach, and like you said, that, and, uh, and concepts that are not true in the Rebbe's words. Next topic, this goes back to episodes 202 through 204. At the time, it was a very hot topic, meaning I received a lot, a lot of comments, and it was a very sensitive topic, a very painful one. And since we've collected more responses, so I felt maybe now is the time to come back to it and just uh, read the comments. So referring to episodes 202, 203, 204, we're talking about shaming people who are abusers molesters and abusers, violators, predators. So that was discussed back then. I'm not going to go over everything I've said. You can refer to it. 
This is follow up a few people who've written about it, namely three. First one, dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for everything you do. One day I will share in person why and how your weekly Hasidus applied sessions are to me one of the most meaningful and bright spots in the world. I wanted to share a short comment regarding the discussion of forgiving abusers. Your response was comprehensive and delicate, as always. Just to add one thought, a human court bezdin cannot ever forgive a deserved punishment, no matter how sincere and complete the tshuva is. You know, like it says about Yom Kippur, you know, it can forgive, I'm adding this, a sin you did to God, but not a sin, you need that person's forgiveness. While we aren't bezdin, and have no right to judge. Once the authorities establish a person's guilt, only Hashem can forgive. But I would also add the people involved. I'm not saying that we must follow this model. I'm just pointing out this aspect. Thank you again. Another writer writes, a different view on the matter. I enjoy listening to your Sunday night class, but lately find myself disagreeing with you on the topic of shaming someone forever. I have never molested anyone, God forbid, nor do I have a relative on the wall of shame. I agree with you that the molestation has to stop. I do not agree with you that the shame has to be on the wall and to be forever. Have you, ever, have you, for, have you yourself ever taken your advice? Do you have a Rav and a Mashpia? Did you ever discuss this with them? I remember many, many years ago, Rabbi Lipsker, that's Rabbi Shalom Lipsker from Bell Harbor, who runs Aleph, brought a group of ex-prisoners for a Shabbos to Crown Heights. The Rebbe asked before Shabbos that when they come to 770 for the Fabrengen, they should not sit together as a group, but disperse throughout the crowd. This was to avoid shaming and making them feel self-conscious. Someone who has done a terrible sin has made shuva, yes, there is such a concept, and healed should not be shamed forever. The whole idea is, is to rehabilitate people, have them heal, not to make damaged families, wives, and damaged children, for both sides. So I suggest you do some more research before you dig your heels in, with what might not be the best advice. I appreciate your comments, but being that I am on the record with my name and you're not, obviously when it comes to a topic like this, the first question one wonders is negias, any biases or prejudices. You know, I know you're right, you're not a molester, and I'm not suggesting you are, but how do we know where your agenda is? It's easy to come and say everything you're saying, and as I said before, if it has political agendas, I want to separate your comments from the person. But I must qualify that because I've seen it too many times that the ones that make such a case, such a logical, rational case for judging, for, for justice and for compassion and tshuva are often just using it to continue covering up and minimizing their crime. And that I will not ignore. And that's why I'm stating it unequivocally. As far as the actual subject matter, yes, we believe ein tshuva. Nothing stands before tshuva, and every person should be encouraged. But if you recall what I said, it's notorious that people who are unfortunately engaged and have been engaged in such crimes don't do tshuva. They deny it, they ignore it, they minimize it, and they don't do tshuva. Can they do? Absolutely. But sometimes they need to be compelled to do it. And if shame works to protect other people from these molesters or from future ones, then you have to wonder who's the innocent ones that have to be protected, the people who did the molesting and maybe doing shiva or the ones that are for sure innocent and definitely should not be subject to this. So we have to weigh a lot of factors here. And I think if we're rational people, you're talking about going to Arav, Mashpia, let's take it all together and not try to 
create a certain narrative that works for certain types of people. Everything has to be taken in balance. I'll be the first to acknowledge and the happiest person if I heard somebody has rehabilitated themselves and somebody has really done tshuva and to the point that not only are they no longer a threat, but they actually become a force for good. Who would not celebrate that? And I wish I saw it. I haven't seen it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But I would love to be able to identify such an approach because that would be, of course, the objective and the goal. Unfortunately, we see too much of the other's extreme. So we have a perfect world. We're not in a perfect world. And we're trying. What we have to do is try our best on all angles. I'm not the authority on this topic. I discuss it as balanced as I can. And I shared the different angles on this topic. And I read the comments so everyone can weigh all the issues and do it in a sophisticated way, but in an objective way, without any other hidden agendas. Follow-up child abuse. One more comment on this. And this, we will, I see I am going to cover the follow-ups. Thank God. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I want to comment on the discussion you had a while back on child abusers as an introduction to my comments. I just want to say that I thank God was never abused and never abused others. So I'm not an abuser trying to defend abusers, and I think I'm pretty much objective. My comments. It seems to me your views are quite harsh on the abusers. I understand that this is a quite complex and complicated issue. On the one hand, we have to do everything possible to protect the children. But on the other hand, it doesn't sound to, it doesn't sound to me like the view of the Torah that a person should suffer for the rest of their life. If a person abused a child at the age of 17, for example, should he suffer, should he suffer for the next 60, 70 years? The Torah is called the Torah's Chesed, and Chazal say that the Abishta did not create anything for waste. So shouldn't we do everything we could to help these people rehabilitate themselves and become constructive members of society and do their shlichus in this world? The Rebbe initiated outreach programs for prisoners to help them rehabilitate, and we have to remember that these are not the most innocent people in society. But the Rebbe was conscious of their soul, and the soul can always overcome the drives of the body. So I basically think that by demonizing people, we are not going to solve this problem. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't really understand what drives these abusers. At the same time, I don't really understand what the victims are going through as well. To tell you the truth, the first time I heard about the nature of this kind of abuse was from the website Jewish Community Watch, founded by several individuals. On many levels, I see him as a hero and revolutionary for bringing to the forefront a topic that was ignored and brushed under the rug for decades and bringing some justice to the victims and some accountability to the abusers. However, I think there's an element of revenge in this website, not just as a deterrent as they argue. The proof is that they put the gory details of the abuse just to shame the person more. If it was just to protect the public, it would be enough to say that this person is a danger. Obviously, an abuser cannot have a job around children, so I was thinking if an abuser is living in a community, for example, the school should send letters to the parents in that community saying so-and-so is an abuser. Don't use him as a tutor for your child, but why paste this picture on the web, which is viewed by worldwide? Isn't that meant to just hurt them some more? I want to conclude saying that I think education is key. We have to understand that what drives these abusers and how they can get help, and children have to be aware of the dangers in society and how to protect themselves and report abuse. Reb Simon, I'm sure there are victims and abusers and potential abusers listening to your show, so you have the unique opportunity to educate and encourage them to get the help they need instead of dehumanizing them. 
May we merit the coming of Mashiach very soon when it won't be necessary to talk about these things anymore. Hatzlocha Rab. Okay. So there you get, you can imagine this topic is one, unfortunately, we wish it was eradicated, but it exists. So I hope we covered enough angles. And that doesn't mean we won't talk about it anymore. I hope I don't have to ever talk about it anymore, but if it comes up, we'll address it as needed. See this question. Thank God the conclusion is always we conclude with good things. The Chassidus question and then the essays. Chassidus question is on this week's Pasha. How does Chassidus explain the verse that when Moshe said, show me your glory, the Hebrew said, no man can see me and live. How does Chassidus explain that? <clears throat> so first of all, the Rambam uses it in the beginning of Hilchus Yisrael to say that we cannot see what means ponim means the essence of God. You can see the reflection, you can see God's attributes, God's interaction with the, the existence, God's creative ability, and, um, but not the essence of it. What does Chassidus have to say? So there's a powerful, powerful sicha. I had this course of writing, Tainus Esther, Tovshin Memches. It was the week of Kisiso. And the Rebbe said the following. He asked a question. Actually, several. In short, there were a few questions. Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking to Hashem, this is on Har Sinai, when he's begging forgiveness for the Jewish people after the Chet Ego. And he would ultimately gain it, God would forgive them, and Yom Kippur, he would come back with the two tablets, which is all told in this week's Pasha. So at some point, their intimate communication, and God is revealing some of the deepest secrets of the divine, and of the cosmos, including the 13 attributes of divine compassion, Yud Gimel Midas so Moshe says to Hashem, show me who you really are. And Hashem says, no one can see me and live. Then he continues. And Abish says like this, I'm sorry, you will see my back. I will show you my back. My face you will however not see. So there are several questions. He already said that no one can see God and live. So why do you have to rub it in again, the Ebrister, and say it again? You say, Risa Sacheri, okay. He placates Mesha, I'll show you something, my back, meaning my more my outer dimensions. Why do you have to add a pun Second question. Mesha Rabbeinu didn't know. We could all understand we can't see God's essence. If I knew God, I'd be God. If I saw God, I'd be God. So Mesha didn't understand that. What was his havami? And the third question, why is it documented? If he doesn't get what he asked for, we have to know that God rejected. Even the genus of an, an animal that's not kosher, we don't speak about. Why do we have to hear that Moshe didn't get what he asked for? And finally, a tzaddik geza, kosh tzaddik asks for something, God fulfills. God decrees something, a tzaddik can eliminate that. So what's going on here? And the Rebbe answers the following. The Rebbe didn't elaborate on all these questions, but it's between the lines there. The, the Rebbe says the following, that the Pesach should be read like this. The Kama should come after Oponai, not after Acherai. You will see my back and my face. And then, my face, however, you'll see by lo by not looking. There's two ways to experience a truth. One is called interpolation. You can observe it, you can study it, you can examine it, you study about it, you research, and you come to understand it. Then there's extrapolation. 
you can't see it directly. So it's Yediyas Ashlila through process of elimination, saying it's not this, it's not this. In the Teireh it says, in Pekutei, from the Meir Nebuchim, from the, from the Rambam, that through Yediyas Ashlila, enough Shlila, enough extrapolation, you can ultimately come almost like knowing the thing in a form of Chiyuv. So of my back, meaning my outer dimension, that you can directly see. But you want to see my pona, you cannot look. It cannot be on your terms. It has to be you have to not look, and then you'll see it through through bitl, through shlila, as the Rebbe explains there. After the sikh was printed, I happened to be looking at Ponim Yofis. Rapinchasarovitz, the Bala Bala Law. And he Mamish interprets it this way that the Rebbe interpreted. We were at Seichendir at the time. There's some Yukim that Rebbe has, Apichsidis, but he says similar idea. One more point I want to make is the classic Sikha from the Rebbe. It's in the, I can't remember the date right now. But the Rebbe says, it's a famous Gemara, that when Mesha was by the Sneh, when the first God first appears to him in the burning bush, so the Abish, so it says Mesha covered his face. Hashem says to him, look at me. He's covered his face. Then, Gemara says, and it comes to this parasha, Moshe says, I want to see your face. So the Abish to answer something very strange. He says, when I, when I wanted to show you my face, you didn't look. Now, when you want to see it, I'm not going to show it to you. And then I asked, what is this? Kavyochel, it's a game, tit for tat. Since you didn't want to look, now I'm not going to show you. What's the meaning? And the meaning is powerful, unbelievable. If you want to see it on your terms, then it's you. You're going to see godliness through your eyes. That's not the essence of God. If you want to see godliness in God's terms, you need to do it on God's terms, not when you want. By the snare, the Abishta was ready to show him, and Mesha just had to look. Now you want to see it. You're asking to see it. That means on your terms, the only way is through Ashlila, through Bitl. The lesson to us, of course, is a powerful lesson. Chesidus explains there's ways to know God through Yediyah Sachiyuv, through Mamala Kalalmin. You look at the blessings in your life. You look at just the design of your human body, the way we breathe, the way the blood pumps, every detail, the awesome design. As the Rambam says, how do you come to love and awe of God? Just be contemplate on the greatness of this existence, how we're fed, we have health, we're born, we wake up in the morning, Every aspect of life deserves gratitude and appreciation. And you come to know God on your terms. God is providing you. Providing you with food, with sustenance, with uh, oxygen, with health and everything. So that's a relationship with God on your terms. Then there's an understanding that is that all that God is? Someone to provide us with sustenance? Someone that's just a creator? So Chassidus says, no. To say God is a creator, yes, he's a creator, but that's not his ikr. That's not his essence. Just like it says, that he gives off light and energy. So there's another dimension where you come to discover through process of elimination, there's no way that God is just there to serve us. This God that's created it all, you have to say is beyond it all. And that teaches us to relate to a God that is a completely different reality. That's getting closer to seeing the face as opposed to the back. Now, of course, back and face, the back and front are relative to each person. Even Meshe Rabbeinu has a pone in Ocher that he related to. One, you can relate to, and it is Bekelim, you integrate it. The other one is through 
shlila, through negating and saying, for example, you could say, since we have wisdom, haloi, you could say, the one who shaped an eye doesn't see. If God shaped an eye and we could see, so for sure God sees. But then you come to a conclusion, God has eyes like us? No. Since we have wisdom, God has wisdom. But then you come to say, He has wisdom, but not like our wisdom. So you can't, so until you come to a point where you say, Is God wise? He's wise, but not like we're wise. Or you go even further and you say, You cannot say God is wise, because that defines wisdom in our terms. You can't say he's not wise, so you say he's not not wise. To the point you come to appreciate more and more the God, the God on God's terms. And that's the growth toward Ponai, and that's what the Teda wants to teach us. The different levels of how we grow in this regard. That everybody in their own way, relative to them. First you relate to God that you can relate to, then you come to realize it's something greater, like a horizon. First you relate to what you're able to see, then you suddenly realize there's far more than you'll ever know and ever see, and then you continue to grow on that as well. As he says in Viadaita in the Lakuta Teda Veschanan, Mamala Seva our relative, what this today Seva Kalam and tomorrow becomes Mamala Kalam. What is today beyond you, elusive, tomorrow you understand. And then, like climbing a ladder, the Seva becomes now a higher level, all relative to our growth. Now we'll do three essays, and these are all essays still from last year's contest. We'll continue doing that until the new essays begin to, once they're evaluated and judged, then we'll address them. The first one is the Aveda of Davening in Light of Chassidus by Esther Rachel El-Kaim, age 31, USA. A very beautiful essay, exactly as the title implies. She writes, Davening, praying, is something Jews do every day, multiple times per day. Yet it is something that is often misunderstood and treated as an obligation to fulfill in the quickest manner possible and not given much thought. This is sad because the art of prayer is one of the most beautiful gifts in Judaism and something that should be appreciated and looked forward to every time with joy and vitality. Although far from an exhaustive exposition on the monumental amount of chassidus on the subject of davening, which would require volumes, this essay will attempt to illuminate this critical aspect of Jewish life through its teachings, most notably from the Rebbe Rashab's Kuntus HaVeda and Kuntus HaTfil, as well as from the Rebbe's Maimorim, and hopefully inspire readers to stop viewing prayer as a boring obligation and start seeing it as a journey full of self-introspection, personal growth, character-building, joy, and vitality that passes through their souls en route towards communion with the divine. Beautiful opening, and that's exactly what this essay delivers. What is davening? Blessing versus prayer, tefillah versus bracha. Jewish needs are holy when we request our needs. Prayers are always answered. The origins of prayer and davening. From the Anshei Knesset HaGdela to the Altar Rebbe Siddur, davening in Chesidus. Davening throughout the day, an example of meditation. Practical application, the davening chart. Really powerful chart. This essay is one of the best essays, frankly, from last year's contest. I didn't look at the scores, but you know the scores are so close that this probably was up there, and I commend the writer of this, and I think it's going to be a tremendous contribution actually helping people think about davening in a new way, exactly as the essay's objective states. So thank you for that. This essay, which has recently just been posted, can be seen at MeaningfulLife.com slash essays, as well as if you subscribe to our emails, we send out every week the new essays as they're posted. Next, Next essay is Fear, Anxiety, and President Trump. David Vigler, age 38, Palm Beach Gardens, Chabad of Palm Beach Gardens. 
As the 45th president of this great nation has completed his first year in office, this essay clearly was written last year, this month tensions are high. Most citizens are neither euphoric or fearful. Or fearful. Few remain ambivalent. So it goes on to say, fear, anxiety, and the Jewish approach to it is a central theme in Jewish thought and a foundational principle of my faith too. Though the Torah never shares with us any unnecessary information, when Moshe confronts two quarreling Jews in the story leading up to the great exodus, we're given an unusual glimpse into his inner emotions. And goes on to use that story, and Hachsidus explains the toxicity of fear to apply to the climate and environment in today's Trumpian age. So, very creative, interesting. I, I found it enjoyable to read and relevant, so thank you for that. And finally, the third essay for tonight is Freedom from the Bondage of Life in Hebrew, Lev Yitzhak Naki, age 19, Herzliya, Israel. He's a student in Yeshiva Stemchim in Kfar Chabad in the central Lubavitch Yeshiva. So, as the topic says, Hachedus Meshiba Dachayim, describing the bondage of life, how we get bound by the worries of parnasa, of livelihood, and health, and other issues that trap us. And how even the spirit and soul of a person gets, says, held hostage. How we use the mind and the heart, or the heart and the mind to free ourselves, to the point that a human being has particular strengths that allow him to free himself from the trappings of this world, including social trappings, as he describes at length. So another wonderful essay. Thank you. And with that, we conclude this week's program, episode 249 of My Life Chassidus Applied. There's a lot of interesting questions that are coming in about recent events, so look forward to topics from um, uh, mic drop to vaccination and others in coming episodes. It's always an honor to be part of this and help this continue, taking chassidus, applying it to life. As I said, the contest of this year has been concluded, and I congratulate everyone that participated. You can already begin writing your next year's essay if you like. Even Mashiach comes, I'm sure there'll be essays on chassidus, applying it to life. And everyone should have a continued chaydash adar, mishanichnas adar marbim besimcha. Every day we grow in others' joy, coming to Purim Cotton and its particular dimension, and then we go into Oder Sheni. Next Shabbos will be Shabbos, uh, the week afterwards will be Shabbos Mavarchim Oder, in two weeks, and Oder uh, Sheni, and leading us into Purim, and then into Geula, and shall all lead us to the Mismar Geula, the Geula to the Geula, Amit Thank you very much.